I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Kevin Kling. Download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org. I, Both your perspective and it's, it just reminds me of, um, oh, I've got to sign that. Do you want to do, do it later? You can do it later. Either one, okay. yeah. Yeah, let's do it later. I just, it, it just reminds me of uh, when I... When I uh, a, a big turning point with Joseph Campbell, and when, when yeah. just when things connect, when we're allowed to connect things, mm-hmm. so often, and especially in terms of faith, we're asked to separate. Yeah, and so to be able to connect. Yeah, that was a big. That show was a big moment for a lot of people. That Joseph Campbell series. It was. It, yeah, I think that and Monty Python's Holy Grail. <laughs> Were they, <laughs> you know, because yeah. between the two of those, I went, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be fine. But no, no, and then the where yours is picked up from that is taking now where we are today and finding those connections. Mm-hmm. I just love what mm-hmm. the people. Well, I just spent four days in New York and oh, I'm wow. kind of frazzled, which is okay because I'm just going to. Draw on your energy. Were you working there? <laughs> I was working. I just had a million meetings. Oh, my God. I've really been looking forward to this. And uh, and I actually find it's okay when I come into an interview tired because then I'm just kind of like you let it yourself. Go. Yeah. Yep. And then I can just really, you know, in a way you can be present more yep. than you feel like you're powerful. Um, it's like those auditions. You go in and you don't care. You're going to get that job yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I um I sometimes talk about my interview method, like my preparation method, as the uh, Vulcan mind meld <laughs> method, because, <laughs> because I try to get inside someone's head before the interview, and then really, you know, this whole thing about drawing on your energy. But I did wonder if you know that on the iPad, do you know the iPad corrects people's spelling? Oh no! Oh it lord! This, it's the, well, practically the only annoying feature of iPad, but the iPad corrects your name to Klingon. Oh, cool. Yeah, there's a Star Trek <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, that was our my brother and I catchphrase when we were kids, if you got hurt, like if you if you got hurt, the other one would always say, a Vulcan would not cry out. So <laughs> <laughs> that was because it would both piss the other guy off yeah. and then it would also somehow ease the pain. Um, so this is different. So are the cameras just... So I just don't need is, to be looking anywhere. Or I just no, pay so attention to Kevin. I was going to tell you, Krista, is that we are... Uh, taping this too, so mm-hmm. I'm going to have to make a tape change. So mm-hmm. what I'll do is I'll step up right. here uh, with about 10 minutes okay. left on the tapes. And yeah, okay. okay. The usual. Are we live streaming now? Yes. Okay. Hey, you did it. Ted talk a while. When I did you do that? I did it. Was it a while I think ago? it was about a year ago. That was good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We're into those too. Mm-hmm. Mary and I are into those TED talks. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great thing. It was at the United Nations, and um, it was. Well, it sounds oh, well. Good. No, I do. It sounds. Um, <laughs> it sounds so grand, but and I, Trent, it I walked. It was grand, but it but is. I but I walked by the United Nations the other day, and I was with our colleague Colleen, and I told her about how I was doing a TED talk at the United Nations. We're all excited, and you know, you get through the security, which was the defining experience of getting into the United Nations. Yeah. And then we get ushered to this dark room in the far reaches. <laughs> it could have been a dark room in any building in the world. 
But we were in the United Nations. It counts. It counts. <laughs> it totally. That's I, like, I got to do the Kennedy Center, and I was so yeah. excited. Yeah. I'm in the lobby, right. but I'm in the Kennedy Center, <laughs> you know. It, it yeah. goes on the resume. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, I'm excited. Should we go? Okay. I waited to come in because I, you and I can do small talk some other time. But I want to. Okay. I want to. I mean, we're not. We're gonna have fun. But oh, good. I um. I just want us to have the want us to have the real conversation. So, oh, I don't know. It was such a pleasure, Kevin. Just reading, really, really delving in in my Vulcan mind melt oh. mode. Um, it was just. I mean, it's it's totally delightful and funny and also. Uh, very moving and profound, and I, I think it's rare for that that mixture of humor and wisdom. And the other, one other thing that strikes me in, in a big way is um, is how you join these stories from childhood with stories of the sweep of your life, and especially now, and you know that you pull all this from that. That span. I mean, in some ways, I know that's classic storytelling, but mm-hmm. it's really, um, it's really striking to kind of, as I, as again, I say, just kind of do a deep plunge and experience it. And then, I, it seems to me that already at the beginning of your life, when you were a little kid, um, you totally became enchanted with the raw materials of stories, which are words. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really. Do you remember how that happened or what was that like? You know, and uh, as I look back, I language in our family, we, we love language. We love to laugh. My family loved to laugh. And, but more importantly, and, um, you know, this is early to touch on this already, but I have to say my left arm, being born with a disability, um, I think led me to becoming a storyteller because rhetoric is immediately obvious and different for someone with a disability because you're referred to and talked about Mm. in words that no one else is referred to. Mm. Uh, And so when people, I know what they would say, um, my arm was withered or crippled or say, uh, oh, you poor thing or what happened. Words they chose, I could tell, like if they blamed um, my parents or me or God or themselves for my condition. And then with that information, I could get what I needed (laughs) out of. Well, right, and that's you know, the other, like, yeah. I so mean, you the, used your your the disability. You also definitely used it as a kid. Just but as it's you, as a kid would. Yes, I mean, yes. as a kid, you're looking for your angles, you right, know, and you're right. looking for that all the time. Mm-hmm. But that also did really lead me to the power of rhetoric and the power of words, and 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 down the road to storytelling mm-hmm. and. Stories throughout my life, I was always blessed to be around good storytellers. What did you say? I thought this was a great line. As a teen, I learned your night before was only as good as your ability to tell about it. Right. That was <laughs> yep. That was in college. Yeah, with my buddies. Yeah, I mean, you wrote, you've written about words. I mean, you know, in phrases like trafficking in the alphabet, words like dormant gods waiting to unleash their power, mm. but. Um, I think the context you just described is, you know, is it, 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 it shines a different light on that power of words, right? The, the godlike power of words. I think, well, the first thing God says is in the word. I mean, how was that word delivered? And one of the reasons I'm a storyteller is that it seems that with the spirit coming on breath, it was a, a word that was delivered on breath mm. and that 
with the use of, of text, we've become more administrative than, you know, through the prophets, through the word, through the breath. Mm. And I still think of spirit as through the breath. And then through that, that really is the power of the word. And where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. And um, another thing I want to touch on, I think, this for our whole conversation is um, you're really, you're very theological. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you always were. It's in there now. But um, even as you wrote in one place about being a kid, remember being a kid, we dance with all we have. We wear Superman outfits to the grocery store. <laughs> as children, we are closer in time to the creator, mm-hmm. uh, which is something I've thought about. It's such a kind of mysterious notion. But do you th- did you have thoughts like that, too, when you were a child? I think so. I think that... Um I, I, I think I, I realized who I connected with, and I, I connected with my grandparents, and I think we were in the same light. I mean, I was in the dawn, and they were in the twilight, but we were in the same light, and because of that, we were both, they're heading to the Creator, and I'm coming from the Creator, and, and it seemed because of that, we spoke a very similar language, and I wondered, even as I was getting older, and as I look back, where that goes, because it does go, we become in, we become really entrenched in this world, and then, as time goes on and we come to the nearer of the end of our lives, we go back to that point right right um, and this time we 're headed the, now we have the names for it before we had the the visceral feeling of the Creator, but now we have the names, and we know what to call it you mean as we move through life mm-hmm. as we become adults. And I think you're also the first person I've heard about who seems to have a genetic predisposition for getting hit by lightning, which oh, yeah. has, which does have its dramatic religious overtones as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Every everybody. Well, it, I used to tell the story that every male in my family got hit by lightning, but my mom took one through the TV, and she, the first thing she, she did, yeah, and she called me up and said. I know it wasn't just from your father's side. That's the first thing she said. <laughs> or did, is, it, is it maybe infectious that she got it? I don't know. There is actually a, um, a physiological reason that lightning does look for the easiest path to the earth. Yeah. And so it, as it's coming down, if you're the easiest path, it will take you. And I think, and even my brother and I in shop class in junior high, they had this test where they put a, a, a wire in and touched our, and, and it measured the, um, your conductivity, your uh, the the amount of moisture in your skin, yeah. and my brother and I are the only two to put the needle in the red, and so I think there's there we must have a lot of something moisture in us or something. You're a conductor. With somehow, <laughs> yeah. So so you mentioned your arm, and mm-hmm. um, you also have the unusual um, experience of knowing about. <clears throat> as you said, disability you're born with and disability you acquire later in life mm-hmm. and the difference between those two experiences. And um, I like to start a little bit with you know the, the, what you learned and how it shaped you, the, the disability you were born with. But as we said, I mean, you, you've always, <laughs> it's always been kind of a tool for you in a way as, mm-hmm. a, as a child and then as a humorist also, right? I mean, you've it is. It's a, it's a really, you're always looking, especially as a storyteller, a way into um, uh, finding a point of trust with your audience or with who you're with. And bringing up, having something as obvious as my arm was always a, 
a good point of to start the trust. Mm -hmm. um, humor, that's another reason to use that I use humor. Um, uh, some people compare storytelling and stand-up. You know, mm -hmm. what's the difference, we're often asked. And the difference to me is that stand-up is aiming, they, they close the door with the joke. I'm a storyteller, we really open the door hmm. with a joke. It's a, humor is, again, a way to establish a trust. Because when you laugh at the same thing, it, it means you come from the same place. It's a point of recognition. And you're always looking for that as a storyteller because most of the time, storytellers were itinerant. We're moving from place to place. Hmm. You're always in someone else's home. You're always in someone else's place. And so you come as the outsider and you really need to establish a point of trust to get started. And because of my arm, um, one thing that's also as a kid that really paid off was when people see something wrong, uh, different, yeah. uh, they immediately um, have assumptions. And you can either feed into those assumptions or take them away from those assumptions and the choice is yours. Usually you start by feeding into them, giving people what they want. And then... Do you think you... Um you actively do that intuitively, give them what intuitively. They want? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't. It's not on purpose. It's again, you, mm -hmm. you, you're as a kid, especially you're developing skills you don't even know you are. I mean, when I was three, I went to Shriners Hospital, and um, I was put in a room full of experts. I mean, you're used to like you know being the seducer, being the one to use the, <laughs> wield these powers, and all of a sudden you're in a, a, a room of masters. Mm -hmm. And I remember that's when it got difficult mm -hmm. because there was one nurse to 30 kids, you know, and that was that was the person you were trying to get the either the uh, the love from oh. or the cookie from. And, and you were up against 30 masters. Right. That's when you knew what you're made of. <laughs> <laughs> you, what did you, you use all these funny ways to talk about your arm in, in mm -hmm. both of your arms. You, you've compared your arm to Scarlett O'Hara. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> What's that? How? Well, when uh, <clears throat> I, I was in a motorcycle accident 10 years ago, mm -hmm. and my right arm used to be fully functional, and now it's um, paralyzed. And so I've uh, my left arm never really did anything. I never really used it very much. So I took to calling my left arm Scarlet, as in Scarlet O'Hara, because before the accident it was, you know, bring me a Coke with some chip dyes. <laughs> and now it does everything. It's like, poor Scarlet, you know. Whether it feels like it or not. Exactly. Yeah, you got you're, you're making a dress out of the curtains, you know. <laughs> um, I love the way you break up the word disability. Oh yeah, especially that the dis the dis in disability. Yeah, well, it, that's a really um, uh, a, a long topic that starts with dis. Um, mm -hmm. I remember, you know, when you read Dante, when you read, you know, he goes to dis. It's the underworld. I think there's a, 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 a quite a connection between um, the underworld and having a disability, because. That, well, as Dante puts it, dis is, is the underworld. It is the place of shadow and reflection where um, you round off the rough edges of torment and desire. You know, you go to this world of dis, and it's the prefix for disability, which doesn't mean unability. It means um, able through the world of shadow and reflection. And so it's an it's just another way of doing things, but it's it is through that way, and it is literally having a foot in two worlds, right? Um, you, and um, especially after my motorcycle accident, well, there was a guy in Minneapolis who saw the accident, and 
he thought I died, and he sw- and he went around telling. Right, all I think the news came out that you had died. I, then, right? Yeah, yeah, and because so because of his eyewitness account, he and he he believed it so strongly that even when it turned out I hadn't died, he still believed it. And I see him on the bus every once in a while, and he thinks I'm a ghost. And <laughs> really? he looks right through me. Yeah, I'll talk to him, and he'll just stare right through me um, because he thinks I'm sent to haunt Minneapolis. Well, <laughs> he's not entirely wrong. <laughs> I, I kind of still feel like I can't extricate a foot from that world, mm. that I think that he's got a point. Um, there. For the rest of my life, I will have a foot in another world. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet that, that – um, and I do want to say so – it's so interesting because I don't know – I don't know if words people might use to describe your humor if they just heard an NPR commentary. They mm-hmm. might use words like home folksy, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe just because of your accent. But your writing is full of yeah, <laughs> your writing is full of Shakespeare and Dante mm-hmm. and uh, Aristotle. Um, so I mean, it's not actually unusual for you to take that image from Dante's Inferno. Um, well, look at those guys too. I mean, uh, when they were writing in their times, Shakespeare could get pretty folksy. Yeah, and Dante's right. full of humor. I mean, I love when he runs into the guy's dad, the poet, his <laughs> rival poet. He runs into the poet's dad. In the underworld, and the and the and the poet's dad said, "Hey, how come you're down here? Where's my son? Oh, he'll be coming soon enough, but he won't be leaving." <laughs> you know, I mean, these guys were totally full of humor. It's great. <laughs> um, and then you know, you tell stories also about, I think, the experience you have um, that people have with with disability or difference of mm-hmm. all kinds, but especially. Kind of startling. Was it in? Was it a social security form where the question is, "What is wrong with you?" Right. Yeah. And the, you have to fill out that. You have to answer that question in that way. And I couldn't do it. Yeah. The first question was, "What is wrong with you?" And I couldn't do it. I just turned around and I thought, "Oh, I know I'll need the money bad enough someday." Because that's the thing you do. Um, but I couldn't do it that day. Mm-hmm. No, I couldn't answer that. And that also people will ask you. Um, What'd you do to your arm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like, you, like you engineered something. Yeah, yeah. You get. I mean, you end up. You, you know, you you end up answering where the person is coming from. Uh, I'm, and I'm always grateful when people ask, um, and that's why I, I find kids. You know, there there's um, their honesty isn't only refreshing. But once you're over it, you're over it. Once you've explained your situation, you're done. It doesn't linger anymore. Mm-hmm. And then you can get on to the important matters. So when people ask, I really do try to answer with the spirit that the question was given instead of the actual question. <laughs> <laughs> so, but does that mean you answer it in different ways yeah. also, depending? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, but um, always with love, to mm-hmm. quote Cornel West. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you... Do you think, um, as a culture, if you look at, at your life, do you think we're getting better with this? With um, well, well, you know, I mean, with difference of all kinds, with including disability. Um, I yeah. hope so. I look. I mean, I I do look to the younger generation, and they they offer hope every time. I mm-hmm. mean, and and not even the very young, but even in colleges. Well, and, what's different? What are they? What are they getting? I think, well, when I grew up, 
um, there was no person of color in my entire school. Mm -hmm. There was no, I mean, to be different was to be an outsider and to be shunned and to be feared. Mm -hmm. And now what, what I'm finding more in this, in this day and age is that, that people experience people who are different than their upbringing, than their, you know, their either, whether it's color or religion or, and, and that can only be good. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But you've said that you don't you don't mind the word disability. I mean, I think Mm-mm. there's also there's a lot of angst about about language, and then we keep changing the language. Which I don't know. Oh, you I and know I were it. talking a minute ago about how powerful words are, but maybe in that sense we give them too much power. I don't you, know. You do, and you go to Europe, and I mean, here you're supposed to name the what the person does, and then the disability. And in Europe, it's the other way around. And, you know, there's all this way of you're supposed to refer. And, you know, that can really get in the way of, of what we need to do. And you know? what does it get in the way of? I mean, what, where, would, where do you think we should be paying attention? I think we should be paying attention to what we have in common. I mean, the thing, one of the things that I learned very quickly is um, – not why are we different, but how do we, especially how do we recognize each other? I mean, mm. the words that I have the prob- most problem with are, are tolerance. Even compassion can tick me off mm-hmm. sometimes. Com- compassion can have a shelf life. And what one word I love is recognition, because mm. when you recognize somebody, you're seeing something in yourself and another. Mm. Um, a buddy of mine, when I got in my accident, worked for the um, Department of Transportation. And uh, he said that a study came out that said that people that either didn't have a motorcycle or a close relative with a motorcycle simply didn't see them. Because you hear that all the time. In fact, the guy who hit me said, I didn't see him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people that don't have one or don't have a relative simply do not see them. And I think that's the case with especially people in need, people on the fringes. If you're not close to someone or aren't that person, you don't see them. Right. Um, and... So I think that point of recognition is crucial. That's kind of making me remember um, a conversation I had with somebody after Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that the head of FEMA said, I remember all the people were stuck in those uh, large groups. Yeah. And he said, uh, basically something like, we're, we're finding out about people we didn't know existed. Right. I mean, it's the same thing. It was. I mean, it's whole whole classes and neighborhoods of people. But that word recognition is is really useful. I think it is because that's what ties us. And I and I know that um, there's those theories that go way back that it maybe even is the when the Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon weren't together. You know that that that's where there was a a social group and a a group that more valued people in their nearer vicinity and mm-hmm. that were all descended from one group or the other you know either either we we value the society as a whole or value our our close knit group well once you hit recognition you've got both groups and 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 then and then you can go from there and then and then you can find out because of that tie um you can move on to how how can we create a society then that mm-hmm. that respects that mm-hmm. um so let's talk about the disability you acquired later in life. I mean, you have been talking about your... Um, oh, did I not bring it? I wanted to... You know, I need the book, the dog. I left it on my desk. I'm sorry. I wanted to read... Um, I do want to read that first page um, that begins 
what is it? What's the name of the book? The dog says how. Dog says how. I should probably dog tell people how. why it's called that. Well, yeah. Why is it called that? Well, because and uh, when when I got in my accident, I I had to get um, voice activated software, which is great because you speak into a microphone and then it writes what you say. Um, but part of the problem is it. That's when I found out I had an accent because it's got to learn your nuances. <laughs> you didn't know before? No, I didn't. And, you know, well, it was like when the movie Fargo came out. Remember that? And people from here kept calling the radio station going, hey, what's the deal? We don't sound like that. I'm like, oh, brother. So I, I'm reading into the microphone, um, I think, the Gettysburg Address. And as I'm – because it already knows what I'm saying. Right. And it can pick up my nuances and then – from then on, know how to write what I'm saying. Well, my dog and cat got in a fight behind me. And the dog said, roo, roo, roo. And the cat, meow, meow, roo, 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 meow, meow. And the computer started writing, how, 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 why, why, how, how, how. Oh, that's where that came from? Yeah, and so that explains a lot. Oh, wow. <laughs> so then that's where the dog says how came from. Yeah. Well, um... I do want to read that. I want to read that. Uh, I, but, Was it a poem? Wow, that's like that's those are the existential words out of the how and why through a dog barking and a, a computer picking it up. Yes, <laughs> yeah. How and why is it? And but you can see it too with a dog and a cat. The dog's looking at the cat like how, and the cat's like why. You know why? Why are you doing this? So great. So I'm going to ask you to read some stuff later, but I actually want to read this, and it's very beautiful. It's kind of like the preface, you would say, on a motorbike. I just want to read the first lines. It all started because I wanted to fly. I remember watching the barn swallows on my grandparents' farm, fork-tailed acrobats of the sky darting in and out of rafters, following roads only they could see, living life just ahead of their bodies. God, I wanted to feel that, a foot in two worlds. So I got a motorcycle. Which ends with you... Flying off the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the last line is, and from my body I flew. Right. So it was a different kind of flight than I planned. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And it seems to me that, um, you know, and um, as you write now, it, it feels like, Maybe this is true for all of us at various times in our life, that something happens and it reframes everything mm-hmm. that comes after. But also because you, I mean, it's a very dramatic happening. And also because I think you're somebody who, again, is always going back and forth in time and connecting dots between childhood stories and the stories of other parts of your life. It's it's almost like the accident also reframes the stories you tell about it, the beginnings of your life. It's, it really did. It's... Um, when when something like that happens, I mean, part of another thing I try to describe in a poem that I wrote that, that is that when you are born with a loss, um, you grow from it. But when you experience a loss later in life, you grow toward it. Mm-hmm. That you are now a, have become a person you aren't yet. You're still the mm-hmm. old person, and you have to grow into that person that you were. And so for me, going back into childhood and finding out where the pieces that fit with this new person belong um, is, 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 again, part of the journey. I have to go back and reframe my childhood to fit with this new person that I am, not mm. the person I was. And so 
that's part of that exploration. So, I mean, what did you see then in your childhood that you hadn't paid as much attention to before? Um, Mostly, I think, mostly human connections. This is when I'm, I went back and I I started to, um, well, I think some of this goes from, part of it is when this accident happened, because I do believe you, you spend the first half of your life running away from home and the second half trying to get back to home. Mm-hmm. And and during that, when I had my accident, was at a pivotal point was I was still running away from home. And I had my accident. And in this journey back to home, coinciding with this person that, I, that, that now is searching back through these people, I, I've started to embrace people I used to run from my parents and my grandparents, understanding them on another level, understanding the choices that they made at times that really either upset me or I didn't understand. Now going back and um, reliving those times through a point of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and and before that, I was my stories really involved uh, um, adventure mm-hmm. and travel. That Again, that running from... And this has really created a, a different form of retrospect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it's person-driven. Right. Right. It's true. There are lots of stories about your brother also maybe mm-hmm. and that and even childhood escape where you may be staying in the same place, but you've created universes that mm-hmm. you go to. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a different it, – it is. It's a different world now. Mm-hmm. And it seems when you write about that, that it was really a, a near-death experience in a sense, right? You mm-hmm. felt like you could have gone either way. Um, I, it did at that point where I can only assume is the point of impact was a, a given a choice to follow a great sense of peace or to return to this plane. And I returned, and one of the struggles that I will always face is why did I return? Why did I choose tension over peace? Hmm. And obviously it was a choice. And so now I know I, I have a little more tension I need to go through before I've earned that peace. Um, I remember you had a quote on one of your shows from Rabbi Heschel about, or someone I was talking about, where, where Rabbi Heschel said, when we pray, don't pray to get things, pray to be worthy to get things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, that's becoming clearer and clearer as time goes on. Mm. The whole nature of prayer, right? I talk some more about that because that's, that's also a theme that I feel like your whole sense of prayer, what it means, what it does, that that has completely shifted. It has, and yeah, the the one of the stories that I tell is about the three phases of prayer. The first being pray to get things. I pray, you know, as a kid, um, especially. Uh, there was a squirrel monkey in the back of Spider-Man comics. So it was for $9.99. And <laughs> I wanted that squirrel monkey so bad. So I remember around Christmas time, I'd pray to God to ask Jesus to tell Santa to get me that monkey, you know. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and then it shifted uh, to prayers in college to get me out of things <laughs> and, you know, yeah. save me. Yeah. You know, I'm in, I'm in over my head here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the story I linked to that is when I was uh, – on the island of Eos in the Mediterranean, 
And I wanted to get back to Athens, but I reached in my pocket and I only had $20 and I still wanted to see Italy and Ireland. So I stowed away on a boat and um, the guy next to me, a French guy, said, they haven't even come around for tickets. And when they find you, they're going to take you below. He said, this happened to a buddy of mine. They'll beat you with socks full of soap because it won't show bruises. (laughs) And I said, well, I'm an American. No, they won't. Oh, they're going to love you. He said. So uh, when they came up, I hid, I hid behind these barrel depth charge things, and they saw my shoes. And I climbed over a ladder, and I'm hanging over the water. And I prayed. I bet I hadn't prayed in 10 years. And I prayed, get me out of here. You know, <laughs> please, God, I won't ever do anything that's stupid. Uh, and, and then the third phase of prayer um, was in, I, I was uh, in rehab at, um, in the hospital. And while I was in rehab, uh, 9-11 happened. Really? And, yeah, and I watched it on TV, and I didn't think it was. I thought it was like another TV show, and I saw nine eleven, and then after that, I had post traumatic stress, and I was in sync with the country. We all were going through post traumatic stress at right. the same time. It was like <laughs> going from denial to anger to vengeance, mm-hmm. um, and I would. I had to take an elevator down to the bottom floor every day. And uh, try to walk a half a block. That was like my job. And I remember one day uh, I was in the elevator with this kid. He was probably eight years old. We were heading down. And he goes, um, he said, I hit my head on a fence post. And he said, I had to get eight stitches here. And he points to the back of his head. I go, yeah, I had to get stitches from here to here. I go from one ear to the other, down my chest, down one arm, down one leg to the floor. And the kid looked at me and he goes, yeah, but mine really hurt. Okay, you can't judge another man's pain. Right. Um, But anyway, I'd I'd walk my half a block, and that's when Mary, my wife Mary, met me in the lobby, and she bought an apple for me. And I food had no taste, so I was losing a lot of weight. And uh, she said, just take a bite just for me. So I took a bite, and flavor, that was the day it came back. And the sweetness came in, and um, when the sweetness hit my tongue, I started to cry, and it was flushing out all the antibiotics and toxins that I had. And I had not again, I hadn't cried in years and my eyes were burning. And with my burning eyes and the sweetness in my mouth, it just felt good to be alive. Mm. And I just remember thinking, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that I lived. And, um, and that my prayers shifted to thanks. And then I couldn't tell whether after that, um, Good things were happening because I was saying thank you or they just – I was noticing them. But there's blessings in my curses even today. I mean mm-hmm. every day. So it, that was my third shift. Is and, and that's when I heard you know Rabbi Heschel's words. I went, yeah, that's the way it goes. Mm. And has that stayed true for you that that's, that's what prayer is? It is, yeah. I've gotten, you know, I wouldn't turn down as squirrel monkey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but uh, it, but it is. It's it's uh, it's again the 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 notion of grace. Um, I I'm uh, there's an Irish, uh, actually I think Hollis said this uh, that um, uh, the three things in a relationship. Luck, patience, and grace to have a good relationship, and I think that translates to so many things, especially if you're Irish, and because mm-hmm. uh, you got to have luck, you know that patience to get through the things, but grace, and this is where I took it off. Uh, what I my my feeling of grace isn't a touch with the divine, 
but it's discovering the divine in the everyday. What is what is divine in the other? Where, where do we touch grace in our daily lives? Because it's always there, and it's always and to recognize it. Um, I'm always um, the idea of saying grace before a meal, just giving thanks. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a reluctant meat eater, but I love it. But I, mm-hmm. you know, so by saying thanks to the animal, I uh, it. It makes me feel a little bit better about, you know, having, you know, having that. I think you've you've written about um, crying more easily as a also just an effect that the that that's now part of your life mm-hmm. in a way that it wasn't before the accident. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Tears come much easier, mm-hmm. um, and it is. It's it's it's. Um, it's the way we flush out our toxins. It's mm. the way we. It's a, there's a lot to tears, the salt in them. That, you know, it's just they um, they do a lot for us. I was wondering as I was reading that, um, have you ever heard that Eastern Orthodox Christianity has a notion of the gift of tears? Hmm. That it's like a, a charism, a grace, a gift. It is. Do you reckon? I mean, do you know? Uh, how good you feel after a cry, you really feel clean. I mean, there's mm-hmm. something, it's like an inward sauna. I mean, something mm-hmm. happens that <laughs> right. comes out and you just feel really refreshed after a good cry. Yeah. I try yeah. In, 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 in the stories or shows that I do, um, I, I, I hope in a good evening there will be as much crying as laughing mm-hmm. because I think both have such healing qualities but it really gets trained out of us right especially out of men maybe i, I think it's a cliche does. but you don't know it's, i have a son true. and i see that he i mean even from a young age and he's a very emotional passionate guy but i see even from a young age he he got this idea that crying is something he stops himself from that's why we have sports movies i tell you <laughs> get him in I tell you, bad news bears still gets the waterworks going in me. But, yeah, don't worry. You'll get him in front of a sports movie. He'll lose it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that. Um, uh, what was I, I? Oh, something else you said about one of the gifts after the accident. Such a, is, nothing is boring anymore. Right. Is that still true? Oh, well, Yeah. I don't think it ever was. Bo- I mean, I was always pretty entertained. We grew up, but you know, we grew up in that time when moms would go in the grocery store and leave you in the car. You know, they might crack a window, and you look over. Boredom and a, was the only element you had to was. work with. But you'd look over in the car next year. There's another kid looking over at you. You know, it's like that's the way we did things. Yeah. And uh, and uh, yeah, I think that well, w- w- uh, uh, there's a. St- I remember being on my grandparents' farm. And we called it unstructured time, but it was boredom. But you know that was like we had unstructured time, which was great because then we got to invent, we got to um, create our worlds. And uh, I always credit well, that is why I've never been bored since. And I do say I've been to plays where I wished I was somewhere else, and somewhere I would have fallen asleep if I hadn't been the one talking. But I haven't been bored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk some more about storytelling and like what you know about the power of stories um one way you talked about this choice you it feels like you made this choice to come back Mm -hmm. to be alive even if you didn't and and that it was a choice even if you're not sure 
the question mark for you is why did you decide, right? But mm-hmm. but that you've written about that as you you've had a chance to rework your ending mm-hmm. <laughs> of your story. Yeah. Um, you know, here's something else you said about the power of stories. When I turn something into a story, it doesn't control me anymore. Right. Um, now I can take you the long way through this or the short. Well, do way. and I'll tell you why. I think this is so important because. Storytelling comes up in so many of my different conversations. Well, because, I, and I think you know, about it a lot because it's my bread and butter. And right. It's, but it's the element of meaning making and it always has been for human it beings. It is. But kind of in the latter half of the 20th century, I think, when you and I were being born, um, we, we, were, we got very technical and yeah. systematic and felt like we would be able to discover everything and – have the systems to make things work and facts were powerful, but, but it's not, it was never the whole story. It was never the whole story of being human. But with every discovery, a million more mysteries come up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, the mysteries never stop and the ambiguity gets greater. Yeah. I mean, it's, we live in the most, uh, a time of, you know, this time where it's harder to follow a light. It's it's more yeah, right. important to find solace in the mystery. I think that that's what storytelling is about. Mm. Um, and the long way to that, I think, I, 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 I when I tell, I want to get back to, to at some point, storytelling and healing because mm-hmm. something happened very recently to me that has changed everything. And I want to get back to that, but I got to get to that. Okay. Um, the, the the story that I like that that it, I, I tell about why I tell stories by telling a story and it starts with my neighbor Ben is at my house and we're making uh, turning a glass door into a screen door and by doing this we're putting the glass door over a garbage can and I've given him a ball peen hammer and he's smashing the panes out and then I'm going to put mesh in it and make it a screen door and so he's nine years old and he's smashing out this glass and all of a sudden he stops and he goes. Are there jobs like this? <laughs> I go, yeah, I got one. And that's how I think about my job. And meanwhile, his brother's running up and down in front of the house. He's got a towel wrapped around his neck. Um, his arms are out in front of him, and he's going, he's three years old, John Gryling. And he's going, I'm Batman, the animated version. And I go, hey, John, get in the house. And he comes in, and he always draws me a picture on our, our dining room table. And this day, he draws a circle. For the first time, he drew a circle. And he runs out the door with this thing, and he comes back the next day. It's all wrinkled. And I could tell he'd slept on it. And he put in <laughs> eyes and a mouth, and he drew his first face. And it was somebody he could tell what to do. And that was a big day for him. Now he had control over things. Somebody he knew or he didn't know. It didn't matter. But that's exactly how I use stories, is that by telling a story – Things don't control me anymore. It's in my vernacular. It's the way I see the world. And I think that's why our stories ask our questions, our big questions, like where do we come from before life, after life? What's funny in this world or sacred? And even more importantly, by the asking in front of people and with people, even if we don't find the answer, by the asking, we know we're not alone. And I have found that often that's even more important than the answer. Right. And so it's that idea of belonging. And we are social beings. And we are. We, um, that idea of, of a comfort in the mystery. And that's where stories, I, I've got a buddy up, uh, in Le Couture and he, um, he says that he's a medicine man. He said, 
you can survive anything with sense of humor and sense of self. Mm -hmm. And our stories give us both of those. Um, Laughter is the same thing. When you're laughing at something, it can't control you. I mean, they say the one thing the devil hates, it's to be mocked. And it's true. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in sense of self. And then I got one. This is a a recent discovery, too. (laughs) Okay. Um, About uh, sense of humor. Because... I sense of humor. People say it's universal. Oh no, it isn't. I mean, you can. I travel a lot around the world, and sense of humor doesn't travel. So I've set up stories in the beginning to test out people to see the kind of sense of humor. And I've kind of come down to the fact that sense of humor is not only regional, but it's weather driven. And it kind of is. <laughs> Hang with me because it it's not. I, I it, uh, here's one example. I was in uh, Australia. And I was, I thought, you know, I'm in the outback. It's like 110. What the heck? I'm telling ice fishing stories just to see what they got. And they got everything. And they, and these guys, uh, over half the audience was indigenous. They were just laughing it up. And afterwards I said, how did you guys, why? I mean, I'm talking about walking on a lake and all this. And they said, well, you got to understand our weather kills us too. But from the other end of the (laughs) thermometer. And so they said, we got everything about the, you know, being alone, being, you know, being careful, all these things translated. Um, but then there is one that this is my other test pilot. Uh, back in 1965, when we were living the twin cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul got hit by seven, like seven tornadoes hit the twin cities. And it was a very, it, it, it really was an amazing time, um, to be here. Um, that time, because, Tragedies really bring out the essence of someone. That was another yeah. thing I noticed about um, 9-11 and New York. The New Yorkness of people really yes, came out. Yes. Or our bridge tragedy here. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the Midwestern or even Minnesotanness of people in that tragedy. Even, and and I, I was amazed at, 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 the, at the, the different um, people that were on that bridge. We always think of... The, the, the Twin Cities is such a white bread community, but it was all the, um, the, the different colors, the different people. And they and after the but they, it was a total Minnesota reaction. They saved people's lives and then they went home and had dinner. They had to go <laughs> find the heroes. And I, I remember watching the news just cracking. I went, there we are. You know, that's us. Um, and so the way tragedies bring out the essence of a community and. But when those tornadoes came, so how I, old were you then? Five or six? Um, I was seven. Seven, yeah. yeah. And um, I just remember everybody out on their lawn looking up at the sky. You know, mm-hmm. where are they coming? And and I downloaded recently uh, the 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 tra- the you can get on WCCO and hear the announcers because mm-hmm. this is before Doppler. You know, mm-hmm. and so. Call in, call in. When you see a tornado, you got to call in and tell us where they're coming from. So all these people are calling in, and this announcer's so excited. You know, he's got a reason for you know doing his job. And, <laughs> and he and and this guy called in from Fridley, and he says, "Yeah, he says I was driving down the highway, and I just seen a tornado, and it came through, and it uh, blew out the windows in my car. I was hunkered down on the floor." And the announcer's like, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And the guy says, "Yeah, that's not why I'm calling. <laughs> the school carnival has been canceled." <laughs> Uh, there we are, and so that's another one that I try to tell. You know, mm-hmm. then uh, in storytelling too, it's it's like a 
a football coach. Like, they'll have their first five plays, you know, and they'll do that no matter what the game is. And then you can tell what the other team is up to. Well, I've got stories that I'll tell in the beginning, and audiences will tip their hand. And by the end of those five stories, I pretty much then know, again, whether to give them what they want or what they don't want, which is usually what they really want. But I'll know that fork in the road. So then you start to improvise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And every storyteller I know that's worth their salt, uh, very few of them come in knowing what they're going to do. Catherine Wyndham, who we just lost this year, she was the queen. She was in her 90s. best friends with Harper Lee when they were kids, Mm -hmm. lived across the street, in fact, their whole lives until she passed away. Um, She was the queen, and she never knew what she was going to tell when she walked in the room. Mm -hmm. And again, it's being being that person who's been invited into a space. Um, she, She would see who was there, what happened that day, what was going on, what did that audience need? A lot of times I'll go and I'll be ready to get up on my soapbox and do a story, you know, to really tell people what's going on. And I'll go, dang, they just want to laugh. Mm. And so then I end up telling fun, you know, funny stories because that's what that community needs at that moment. It's, it seems to me like a rare profession, right? I mean, we, we hear about actors and, as you say, we hear about stand-up comedians. Mm-hmm. And, but... But the self-defined, you know, the, the storyteller, it feels, uh, I, 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 think, I think of it as something that used to be very prevalent in culture. Of course, we have all kinds of storytelling. I mean, TV mm-hmm. is storytelling, but we don't, we don't And it think used to be in the way. home. It used to be the form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that some people lament radio because it really took storytelling out of the family. Mm-hmm. And that used to be the way you would sit around and entertain. And uh, it, it really, it, there's this wonderful play, The Kentucky Cycle. Um, it's um, Robert Schenken. It, it, it won the Pulitzer a few years back. And it's mm-hmm. amazing. But I love this guy. He comes around telling stories in Kentucky. And he sits down with the family. And, and they, he says, well, and, and he did like what the old Shinachis used to do in, in Ireland when they would come in and, they would give, you know, they'd they'd start with Adam and Eve and work their way up to what yeah. happened that day. And yeah. and that in his story, he sits down and they, they said, uh, they said, well, who's president? And he said, well, where'd you leave off? And they said, and they gave him a name. He goes, well, we've had a couple since then. And he catches them up on the news. He catches them up. And so a storyteller used to really be the information, you know, bring bring all these things and then tell a story. Um, and, and so it wasn't just entertainment. Mm -hmm. It, it had, it had history, it had religion, it had things that you really needed. Right. It was essential. It was necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's change the tapes then. Okay. Just going, okay. I mean, is this, Uh, uh, are you getting stuck? Oh, it's great. Okay. No, no, it's totally great. And I want you, but I know I want you to tell, you said you want to talk about storytelling. There's feelings, another so phase. Yeah. It's, it's right. really recent. It's like within a few months that it's really changed things. Okay. Yeah. Um, I hope it's, I hope it feels good to you too. And this is fun. Okay. <laughs> I just don't know. Yeah. I can, cause I am, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, my, it's like being on the inside and the outside. The thoughts are way bigger, and when they come squeezing out, <laughs> there's a littleness to them. But that's always true, isn't it? Yeah, because oh. we we're talk we're trying to talk about things that 
while words are the most powerful tools we have, they can't they can't completely reach there, right? No. They can't. You're right. Mm-hmm. That's a really good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah. I mean, that's what makes that's, it such an adventure. It, it is. That's why it's so great, mm-hmm. is that it's the reach beyond our grasp. It's the mm-hmm. hubris. That's mm-hmm. another thing I'm just totally into is hubris. I just love it. Into hubris? <laughs> we wouldn't have anything without it, you know? We'd be screwed. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> we, you know, we'd be whatever it was. Mm-hmm. It's it's always that nut. Oh, that's another thing. The long gene, I could talk about that. That cracks Oh, yeah. I the, read gen- that. Remember yeah. that genetic yeah. uh, anomaly in Americans? I wasn't sure if you'd made that up or if that was really something the that scientists talked about. It's somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I, I heard about it and then ran with it a bit. <laughs> How are we doing? Okay. So, and you said a minute ago that you had a, you had a story about Oh, you had a story about stories and healing yeah. or something you've learned just recently. Yeah, and this has become my – this is my struggle these days okay. is that uh, after my motorcycle accident, I had post-traumatic stress. And I couldn't sleep. I had anger issues. I just um, – it, it was really – had changed me as a person. And not you know, more. can I just say also that – you're so delightful and you're so funny, and I think it's really good to hear that part of it too. Oh, boy. You know what I mean? Because you you can speak so eloquently about what you learned and the gift of it and the grace of it, and but you you won all that. It was hard won, right? It was wrested out of. It still is, and this is this places. is part of the struggle. This is exactly yeah. It mm-hmm. it because um, all of a sudden all those buffers uh, that that went anger. I could go straight to it and. I work in a theater company of performers with disabilities. Mm-hmm. and I want to talk about that later. Oh, yeah. good, because mm-hmm. I've learned so much from them. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things is about anger uh, is that it's, it's, it is a tool and it can get things done. But it's, to me, it's like pain. It's really – it's not the answer. It's an indicator that something's mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't find the answer through the anger. You can just know something's not mm-hmm. right. That's helpful. Well, and I take and, – and so I was – anyway, with this post-traumatic stress, it was really – it was too much. And so uh, I started working with um, – where they one, – one way it was described was that the two halves of the brain aren't connecting. So one of the, one of the um, um, therapies – is to watch a light going back and forth, and it connects the two halves of the brain. And it did have. It, you need to do that a lot, though. Um, and I and I gave up early on that. And and because it seemed to disappear, and I was like, great, it's gone. Yay, I did it. I beat it. And then uh, a few months ago, after years and years, it came back with a vengeance. And now, every, what came back? The, the post traumatic stress. Okay. And I went to a therapist, and she said, "You got to understand, this isn't." It's not time related. It it doesn't work. It sits in such a deep place that it's not triggered in ways you would think. Mm. It's not something that time heals. It it Mm. will come back. And so what she had me do, which was so fit just with my weird Jungian sensibility, (laughs) she had me uh, tell the story of my motorcycle accident. It was a bit more complicated than this. She told me the story, but instead of hitting the car, I missed the car, and I went to where I was going. And by telling, retelling the story and having a different outcome, I started sleeping better. I started all of a sudden, um, the post-traumatic stress 
really dissipated in a significant way. And it was because I retold the story in in another way that, that had me survive in another mm-hmm. way. Um, now, the struggle with me is I still wake up in the morning with my arm not working, with all these things. So there's a reality and then there's another story I've created. Mm-hmm. And it really seems to fit with the way we work as, as humans, especially these days. We need to rewrite our story sometimes just so we can sleep at night. Mm. And then, but that's not the reality. But we can't live in the story that makes us sleep, but we need it to sleep. Mm. And so that's my struggle now, putting those two together, taking the myths we form um, to, to make ourselves feel better and fitting it with the reality that we live in. So something you talk about that feels like it may be connected to me um, is that there's a difference between healing and curing. Oh, a big difference. And it, it seems connected to me because in this culture, we, we just tend to be focused on making, solving problems, right? Mm-hmm. Curing. Um, but what, but it's it's related to what you're saying that there are, there are ways in which we need to heal which are not going to be about everything being all right. No, and anyone that's ever had their heart broken knows exactly that. I mean, the heart is an instrument once broken, never go, repairs the same. Hmm. Yet, even though it can't be cured, it can be healed and you can love again. But that heart isn't the same heart that hmm. was broken the first time. And anytime you experience loss, whenever I use the word trauma in my, in, in my work, it, the word loss I usually replace as often as I can because a loss is a loss, whether it's a, a, a heart, a limb, a promise, a person. Mm-hmm. It's all loss and it's all trauma and it's all things that are broken that can't be cured. You can't go back, but you can heal it, and mm-hmm. that's an important thing to know. I think also aging is 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 incremental loss. It is. Um which is, and, and this gets at something I, I, I definitely want to talk to you about it. Here's, a, here's one of your lines. Um, if you are able-bodied, it's only a temporary condition. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is to say that everything you're describing that you learn through disability, disability inborn or acquired, is, it's, it's kind of an expanded version of something that in fact is very mundane. It and, is. It, it's what happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. We all experience loss. Um, and it's part of being human. It's part of our experience. And, and it's something, it's not something you necessarily cherish. I mean, to me, I associate it with being an artist. Nobody's an artist on purpose, you Mm -hmm. know, it's something that happens to you and, and that then you, you create from there. It's like when you're a person and you experience these losses, um, it's what gives us our richness. It's, it's, uh, um, yeah, it's it gives us hard. our wisdom. Wisdom's not cheap, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's we do we we pay for it. Right, right. Well, so this conundrum of needing the stories that can help us sleep at night, but knowing that, what are you saying? That I mean that it can't, in fact, be defining. That it's that you're going to have to still move beyond that story. Yeah. I think again, this is a, again living in a world of ambiguity, living mm-hmm. in these in uh, these world of paradoxes. It's uh, 
part of me now that I see that and recognize that, now I'm all excited about it. <laughs> now it's something I get to You get to figure use out. it. Exactly. Yes. I get to talk about in front of people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and slowly. I, that one is one I don't think I'll ever bridge. I think mm-hmm. now I've got, now I've got a, a lifetime of work that's, that I can't wait to explore. Yeah, you know, it, it, and it really is the essence of what of storytelling of of what we do of of theology is that is that connection of myth re- with reality mm-hmm. and, and the need for both of them. Yeah, here's some more theology I found in you. Um, I, I see. I don't. I didn't write down where this came from. You'll probably know, but um, I think it was a it was part of a conversation. With your father, maybe, and you—you you wrote the universe. I think it was one of, from one of your plays. The universe isn't a machine, father. It's a brain, a creator. That's why our lives are stories and not syllogisms. Mm-hmm. There's the, that's a poem. Can I do that poem real yes. quick? Yes. Um, yeah, it's it's called the star. Oh, it's from the star, right? And, yeah. My earliest recollection is sitting on my father's knee, and he's pointing up to the stars, and he says, "You see that star, Kevin." I reach out my tiny hand. Gah! He says, you want to touch it? Gah! He says, no, Kevin, leave that star there. With that star, you can go anywhere in the world. That star can take you to places never seen by another, but more importantly, it can bring you home again. Gah! Had my infant tongue been more explicit, I could have explained to him, no, Father, no, I I don't want to go to that star. No, no, Father. Wait, you're going to have to cut this part out. What, what, what's that set you just read? Because uh, that's where it goes. The universe isn't a machine, Father. Oh, it's it. a brain, a creator. Yeah, yeah. Okay. universe isn't a machine. It's a creator. That's why our lives are stories, not syllogism. And I don't want to use that star as a vector. No, I want to go there. Because if I can get to that star, it's a short hop to the next, to the next, to the next. And in no time, I'm hunting with Orion. I'm cartwheeling with Cassiopeia. I'm trafficking with the gods, drinking their wine, eating their meat. No, Father, get me to that star, and I'm never coming home. I love that. Thank Uh, you. Do you have a a lot of your stuff memorized? Yeah, most of it. Mm -hmm. There's so much of it. It kind of surprises me. It's, it, surprise me? it wouldn't surprise me with a singer, but it surprises me with... That's where it came from. I mean, mm-hmm. these books, I wrote that book 20 years after I told the stories. They come from the oral tradition. Mm-hmm. It's like... Uh, um, You're a bard. The Odyssey. It, it's, it, yeah, mm-hmm. the, that was told for hundreds of years before it was written. And these stories that I tell... And it's really crucial because if you write a story first you're, and you tell it, you're telling words. If you tell a story first, you're... you're creating imagery and that's the key to storytelling is creating these worlds with people in the audience it's a visceral um, experience Mm. and so these stories i'm not sure how they read but they're told with invisible threads and these invisible threads hold the story together um through the oral tradition okay Hmm. does that make sense it does okay it does (laughs) But I, I mean, this is a point I keep making. I think it's ancient and it's foreign at the same time. It's foreign to us as twenty-first century people. You know, we're, re- we're rediscovering it. But. I'm, you know, I keep thinking that. But I, I work with especially um, when I th- young people, but especially college and high school, and I keep thinking our technology is rectum, and they are some of the best storytellers, and they still work in symbols. They still work. 
in it, and their economy of language. And I don't know if that's thanks to technology, mm-hmm. but they're, they still have it. Because um, I'm always on the outlook for that to say, okay, when did technology wreck us? It, it has not. We, uh, I'm, I always leave um, when I work in universities. I'm on cloud nine. Mm-hmm. I just I feel so great with where the young people are these days. I have that experience too. Isn't it great? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it is. Um, I said I just uh, something else. Um, this is just echoing something you said when we started speaking about uh, what did you say that when we that when we're young we're we're moving away and then. And then when we, as we go through life, we're moving, we're coming back home. And when you talked about uh, this experience you had of almost dying and coming back, and and you said, "Am I growing toward who I will be, or from who I was?" Mm-hmm. Which again is about all of our lives. Mm-hmm. And when there's a fulcrum like an accident, yeah. I mean, you're wondering. At that point, did did that happen to atone or am I to learn? And you wonder then, is it a point of retrospect or is it a point to grow from? Mm-hmm. And that's when something like an accident happens, any kind of loss. That's it. That's the opportunity of it. Is it what was I to atone for? What was I to learn? It's one or the other. That's why when people say, uh, when I, I think there is a reason that everything happens. But I don't know which side of the calamity the reason sits. Okay. You know, was yeah. it before or after? But there's a reason. <laughs> so tell me about Interact, which is this oh, theater yeah. company you have. With Does everybody who's – do all the actors have some kind of disability? Most do. There's a, a few performers that are on staff that are, are, that are just wonderful performers that are, you know, um, that, are, that are mixed in with the company of – of um, performers with disabilities, and uh, and and I just get to work with them. It's actually uh, a company that was g- going strong long before I put my big old toe in the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're just—it's—it's it's remarkable, and um, I just—I I feel so fortunate to be part of it. I mean, uh, they really bring something needed to our society. That's this. Um, there's a diva in everyone. <laughs> I mean, you, you find that pretty fast. Mm-hmm. It's that uh, outward appearances have nothing to do with it's. It. I, I mean, I know you've had John O'Donnell. It, it, just that idea of inner and outer landscape. <laughs> yes, and also he's a diva too. <laughs> I mean, oh, good. I, that yeah. does me good to Absolutely, hear. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I love it. Well, there's some seriously good. There's some fine inner landscapes going on at Interact. You know, mm-hmm. it's this. Ah, mm. uh, and. I, I, I learned so like, oh boy, I could tell so many stories that, but but one recently that 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 is really keeps reoccurring. Um, uh, one of my friends, Ingrid, she has aphasia, and aphasia is a condition that makes it's difficult for for um, thoughts to become words. Hmm. And Ingrid said one time before her aphasia, um, she used to feel. I think, therefore, I am. But now she knows we come from a deeper place. Now she, now she feels, I am, therefore, I think. And when she told me that, I've, that 
has come back time and time again when I remember at that point of that accident and I remember it at, like when you when you think of being down the middle like with the past they say when you dwell on the past it's regrets when you dwell on the future it's anxiety how do you find that middle road that sensual middle road and when you can ride that the things that fall away um, when the symbols fall the myths fall the words fall and you get to that point right before the emotion of the experience mm. you really are at a point i am therefore i think you're at but you mm. can't hold it but you know it's there <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean yes and somehow that not being able to hold it is also part of that human condition it is it's the beauty of it mm-hmm. it's like love or truth or beauty it's those things that can't be held it's those things that um that 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 we keep trying to get back we mm-hmm. treat it's that idea of recreating, which I mean, if again, if if we're created in God's image, if we are creations, then we too are creators. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I love about the idea of God then is that you know, as a creator, your creations continue to surprise you; they delight you. Um, dreams, for example. You're coming up with your dreams, right? Well, then how come you get so scared? How come you get so excited? <laughs> if you're coming up Somehow. with this, yeah, how do they, how come they affect us the way they do? And then again, then you take that, If the, okay, if we're in the image, then can we still um, surprise and delight God? And then the answer would have to be yes. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, so these points of, uh, of that point of I am, therefore I think, that point before the emotion uh, is one of those points mm-hmm. of of that gives us the creation, the recreation. Mm. I loved reading. Also, um, it seems like you've been to Australia a lot. Yeah, I love over that your place. Life. Yeah, and it it also, as I thought about it, it made sense because those are also cultures which do this. Also, connecting that you do between origins and. Right origins mm-hmm. and 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 meaning now and mm, past, present, and future are more like Einstein descri- describe them than the way we mm-hmm. experience them. They're not linear; they're always interacting. No, there's like over six hundred languages there, mm-hmm. but no word for time or ownership. I mean, that's it. That's the so it's and and it's a culture. I'm not even going to try to describe because I can't figure it out. Which <laughs> I love about it. It's. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you had a guess that um, Eckert, uh, Eckert Tolle? Yes, uh, yes. When he said that he couldn't respect a God he could understand. Oh. I just love that phrase because that's how, that's how I feel when I'm in Australia. Mm-hmm. I can't understand them and I love that about it. <laughs> and, and, and so many Western thought, they try to put what happens there in our frame of reference, but you can't. I mean, it's like a buddy of mine, Steve. He's, okay, we're in the outback, and he's going into town. And I go, why are you going into town? He goes, to meet this guy, because we don't have any phone. We're off the grid. I say, well, how do you know he's going to be there? And Steve says, that's why I'm going to town. And we're at a complete disconnect. (laughs) But, of course, he goes to town, and there that guy is that he wanted to meet who lives on another mission. And it's so... My question to him is as baffling as him going to town to meet a guy, and there he is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's this, 
there's this other way of living there that's beyond my comprehension that I have to that I'm addicted to that I got to keep going back and experiencing. <laughs> and you you write about um, oh no this was Dean Seal interviewing you. Oh yeah, he was a great <laughs> Minnesota Minneapolis figure. He's kind of like an artistic minister and a sp- yeah. spiritual artist and. Um, and you were being interviewed together with uh, someone from Australia who's you were you did this collaborative project mm-hmm. right with with Interact this theater company you were talking about mm-hmm. and a theater company there is it a similar right, kind of theater 2D, company yeah um and this word came up that's in Aboriginal culture or Native American culture Hayoka. Oh yeah. Contraries. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk the, about that. Well, Those... it's it's the 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 clown or the fool mm-hmm. and which I think is in in every culture it's so important. Um and in I can describe it better in our culture. I I I, I wouldn't want to go into another culture because mm-hmm. it's again so thick. It's it's beyond my understanding, but I can take it to the way I feel about it in our culture. Right. And I I, I again refer to Shakespeare's wonderful talking about clowns and fools, and he really differentiates between the two, which is another thing that his uh, clowns really have a foot in two worlds, and his fools have a foot in each world, and and so his clowns, like in a Midsummer Night's Dream, you you would watch them and you can learn from them by observing them. But you would never take their advice. Okay. <laughs> It'd be crazy to take a clown's advice. But a fool, like Lear's fool, you would take their advice because they have a foot in both worlds. They have a foot planted in two worlds. And th- so I tell people when it comes to voting, you know, for president, vote for the fool, not the clown. Because uh, w- we really do um, – uh, and and I and I try. I want to live my life as a fool because I know I can't help but have a foot in two worlds. But I want to make that useful. And so in in our culture, um, again, the clowns are ones we can learn from for watching, and the fools are ones we can take their advice because they see our world through a spectrum. It's like stepping outside the world, looking from another plane, mm-hmm. and and looking at our world from a cold eye. Um, and and you can learn a lot by. Both groups, because if a fool or a clown are saying the words of our leaders and they come across as as ludicrous, then we know not to follow those. You know, it's it's they 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 really provide a service to to our world. Mm-hmm. And and who are the fools? I mean, I'm, I'm not asking about politicians. No, <laughs> we won't carry the political analogy. No, we only, have, we only have a couple <laughs> who are, hours. Who are the fools? <laughs> I mean, who do you think of as fools? Or who? Well, now it's like John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Yeah. And, uh, when you know, when I was growing up, I I, I also I loved storytellers growing up as well. George Carlin or um, uh, uh, Richard Pryor. The, mm-hmm. the, the they they were really hilarious and came across as 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 fools, but their words were very strong and very biting and really were a touchstone to the problems that we were having mm-hmm. and. And then I go back Voltaire and Swift and, you know, you can really go back and find some amazing writers, you know, that that really use the fool to yeah. great to great effect. Hmm. Um, I think you even use the analogy of looking looking at a parallel universe or mm-hmm. kind of, which is such I love that kind of 
image now also with because science is bringing making it so much more real and rational it is. to think that way. Um, I think I want to, as we kind of draw to a close, um, more theology that I find in you. I mean, you you compared yourself to Lazarus, right? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After you came back from the dead, mm-hmm. when you flew off your motorcycle. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I really. I, the story of Lazarus. I, I that's one I, I I just touched on. I did a, a play that I, the character of Lazarus and um, and his connection and he and, and and his connection with Jesus. And I loved his sisters. You know, one was supposed to be Mary Magdalene. You know, and the other sister Martha, who was so mad at Jesus because he left him down there for four days. <laughs> you know, and she's like, bring him back. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 just that, um, that what we we don't get through the Bible what Lazarus went through in in where he was, what that four days. So I wanted to explore that in this play about what happened on each day. When did he run into the rich man that was left behind? Mm-hmm. What did the rich man give him? What were his first days like of of getting used to living in this world that was devoid of sensual nature? Mm. I mean, when when we talk about living and riding that line, it really is living the senses to the to, you know living the five senses. When you're when you are um, living them, then you are the most awake that you will be. And Lazarus in this world. It, he doesn't have those, so he needs in to his, live on his in m- his world of death. Or in- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's and, and when you read or or hear interviews with people who've been held captive for any reason, they really do go back and they really do take the things that were giving them uh, uh, music or or art or the things that that um, enrich their lives that are that are are again recreations of things that are very visceral, very sense oriented. That's mm-hmm. what the what really keeps them going. And so what did Lazarus take from that? And when did he take from that to to a realization of where he was? And as soon as he realized where he was, there was someone else. And it was this rich the the rich man and they have a conversation. And 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 the rich man is sure that when Jesus comes he will take him because that would be the smartest choice. And when Jesus doesn't, it, it actually is the smarter choice for Jesus because by bringing out Lazarus, he's created a movement. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, in that play, I mean, it was, it was just full of the Bible. I mean, it really, mm-hmm. really was a biblical play. Have you, have you worked with the Bible in that way, is that new? It is new for me. Um, Post-accident new? Mm-hmm. It, again, yeah. Taking this. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I, I, I kind of was a, you know, it was, it took me a long time because I grew up, the, the Bible was really difficult because there were so many people telling me what was in it. I mm-hmm. forgot that, like, I, I learned kind of through fairy tales. I learned that when you retell a fairy tale, you can tell it the way you want to tell it. Mm-hmm. You can tell a story the way it, it what touches you in the story. I mean, the, even Jesus has four different versions, you know. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. even, you know, there's there's markers for that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I And I never liked fairy tales because uh, the guy with the disability always got the short end of the deal, you know. And, 
and and the other. So who's that? Who would be the? Well, guy like with... the seven dwarves, you know. Snow White trades in <laughs> yeah. seven good ones for one, you know, perfectly good little <laughs> ones for one big one, and Rumpelstiltskin, you know, he rips himself asunder, and everyone that's an other is really treated that way. The ugly duckling. Okay, this one, this one was a particular thorn for me, because. Um, I mean, the ugly duckling, it's all going great, you know, when he's this large uber duck. I love that, you know, this big duck. But then they find out he's a swan. And so he, he all of a sudden, he's not a duck anymore. He's a swan. When you're a kid with a disability, what does that do? Hope, you know, you hope a shiva aliens lands and goes, no, you're really one of us. Because, you know, but you're stuck living with ducks. And so the, a lot of the fairy tales were really, uh, and, and yet... When I learned you could tell them the way you saw them through your own eyes and that fairy tales were meant to be told and told to, you know, to get your point of view across. Then I got to change them around and thicken them up. And then and then with the Bible sticking to it, but there's clues and hints and things inside the Bible that really relate to what I'm going through. Well, also... From what you know as a storyteller about storytelling oh. and about oral traditions, it it those stories began as oral traditions, yeah, and they then were. they got locked onto a page. They were, yeah. But you, it's it's there's no stretch for you to say. Uh, there's there's so much more in those stories and behind those stories than what the page can capture. No, and, and I, that I, we have to be suspicious of what is captured. I think it does because then administrations get a hold of it. I mean, it's the same thing that happened with our schools. I remember hearing a while back a, a radio interview with a, a, a man who worked with earthworms, and he was concerned because the, the North American earthworm was being taken over by the um, European earthworm, and it was going to change our soil as we know it, and the farmers weren't keeping up, and he says, and there's only two people that are studying this now, and mom's thinking about quitting. <laughs> he said, <laughs> so they were like, and he said, because they won't teach it in schools anymore because it's not, um, kids don't want to learn this stuff. And and the students, the problem with administrations taking over from professors was that the students are determining what's being taught. And I feel that that's what, that can so easily happen with a religion. And and when it becomes dogmatic and, you know, it is when it, it, it is used for administrative purposes instead mm-hmm. of to to help a people get through a, a, a hard time or a, or to celebrate. I mean, there's as much celebration in the Bible as there is um, lessons on getting through hard times. Right. In a way also, and not just in the Bible, but in, you know, the heart of religious tradition, there's so much of that. Just thank you for being alive that oh, you discovered man, after it, your yeah. after your accident, and that's also kind of lost in a lot of the way religion came it's down a, to us in childhood. It's with that create and recreate. It's the Joyce rejoice. It's the the you know. It's that remembering that joy, that original joy, recreating joy, rejoice. You mm-hmm. know, and um, yeah, and mm-hmm. and yeah, that's that's the key. Yeah. Um. So there's a line um, that you wrote about identifying with Lazarus. You know, uh, uh, it, it probably was in Joyce Rejoice. I see I took terrible notes here in terms of when I translated <laughs> it over. Um, you said, I wish I was so certain. I have doubt. I have doubt. But there is freedom in that. Instead of a path, I'm finding solace in the mystery. Mm-hmm. And you've said that also, that mystery is so important. 
And then I, I was really struck by um, this little essay, Racing Toward Solace, and the dog says oh, how. Wow. And I, there was a little, you tell a story. It's right near the end of the book as the book is laid out. And um, I, I felt like maybe this is back in the days when pots and pans could talk. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not even sure. There's so much. I re- it's not like I read this and I know exactly what it means, but I feel like it somehow is, expresses a lot of the essence of, um, of you. I mean, it's a very simple thing, but I wondered if you would read that. Sure. And then, uh, I don't know, whatever else you felt like telling or saying or uh, reading. Um, I might, should I do that tinkle? I, we've been talking about, should I, I do tickle pink? Tickle pink. So okay. if you wanted to read that, uh, yeah, I think that's it's one that's kind of, okay. I end a lot of shows with okay. that one. Okay. So th- back in the days when pots, just that. Back in the days when pots and pans could talk, which indeed they still do, there lived a man, and in order to have water, every day he had to walk down the hill and fill two pots and walk them home. One day it was discovered one of the pots had a crack, and as time went on, the crack widened. Finally, the pot turned to the man and said, you know, every day you take me to the river, and by the time you get home, half of the water's leaked out. Please, replace me with a better pot. The man said, you don't understand. As you spill, you water the wildflowers by the side of the path. And sure enough, on the side of the path where the cracked pot was carried, beautiful flowers grew, while the other side was barren. I think I'll keep you, said the man. I don't know, first to me, somehow that felt like just a picture of a lot of what you've been talking about, about living with disability, living with loss as a human being. Mm-hmm. I think that... Uh, yeah, I think that it's, well, the story says it, but I, mm-hmm. I, I think it is looking at, especially living on the fringe and, again, being recognized for what we bring, not for what we aren't. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it is that world of, of, you know, the dis of disability. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. that other foot. Okay, so, yeah, I would love it if you want to read Tickle Pink, which is just beautiful. Tell me... Uh, where this came from, or is this this came from? Um, um, uh, uh, we did a I did a show. I grew, work with a group called Bad Jazz, <laughs> and it's three guys that we aren't. I kind of plateaued in the junior high as far as playing tuba, <laughs> but I still love to do it. And so this was a, a a a song that I wrote, and it's based on the the song. The story is based on uh, when you were feeling your best. My mom would say, you're in the pink, which meant that your insides were pink. Um, And so this poem is called Tickled Pink. At times in our pink innocence, we lie fallow, composting, waiting to grow. And other times we rush headlong like so many of our ancestors. But rush headlong or lie fallow, it doesn't matter. One day you'll round a corner, your path is shifted. In a blink, something is missing, it's stolen, misplaced, it's gone. Your heart, a memory, a limb, a promise, a person. And innocence is gone. And now your journey has changed. Your path, as though channeled through a spectrum, is refracted and has left you pointed in a new direction. Some won't approve, some will want the other you, and some will cry that you have left it all. But what has happened has happened and cannot be undone. We pay for our laughter, we pay to weep. Knowledge is not cheap. 
To survive, we must return to our senses, touch, taste, smell, sight, sound. We must let our... We must let our spirit guide us, our spirit that lives in breath. With each breath, we inhale, we exhale. We inspire, we expire. Every breath has a possibility of a laugh, a cry, a story, a song. Every conversation is an exchange of spirit, the words flowing bitter or sweet over the tongue. Every scar is a monument to a battle survived. Now, when you're born into loss, you grow from it. But when you experience loss later in life, you grow toward it. A slow move to an embrace— an embrace that leaves you holding tight the beauty wrapped in the grotesque, an embrace that becomes a dance, a new dance, a dance of pink. Hmm. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, this has been really a pleasure and an honor. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You too. Oh, boy, Dean, I hear you. Are you kidding? This is, oh, man. <laughs> and as you say, we've been moving towards this for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, Thanks. Yeah. Are we? Oh, there you are. <laughs> Where did Trent go? Okay. I know you have huge, lots of huge fans. Oh, I never got to. Glass. Well, oh, uh, I never to got to yeah. that thing. Uh, the the what? The um. The long jean. Oh yeah. Okay. Tell me. Do the long jean. Oh, here's this. Uh, it's a quick story. <laughs> I just tell the story because yeah. it's part. You don't have to rush. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, it, it just it was something that kind of goes along with all this about. Americans and and that uh, we have an anomaly, a genetic marker that separates us from the rest of the world, and it's called the long gene, and it's found in people that have broken away from societies like explorers and adventurers have it. Uh, the whatever happened to's in their high school reunions, whose last words were "Watch this" or "What's this do?" <laughs> And my dad was a member of the Longines Club, and he always had these little experimental airplanes. And uh, he'd be like, I'd be in college at Gustavus, and I'd sit next to a kid in psychology class, and I could hear this plane buzzing the campus, the prop back of the flaps up. And I'd turn to the kid, and I'd go, my dad's here, my dad's here. <laughs> and I'd run to the airport, which is a mile from campus, and their dad would be with the prop still going around. And I got on up on the wing into the plane. We'd pull the cowling over and then fly down the Minnesota River Valley, the leaves changing in the fall. But one time, Dad and I were flying down the river valley, and we hit a fog bank. And, I mean, you could not see anything. And I look over at my dad, and like usual, he's shelling peanuts, drinking hot coffee, unfolding a map, and tapping an instrument. And he turns to me, and he goes, Hey, Kev, do me a favor and look out that window and see if you can spot the ground. So I'm looking out the window, and I hear my dad go, Hey, Kev, it might not be down. <laughs> I had to say I read that story and I I had to read it again and again and try to picture it. Uh, we didn't know which way we were pointed, and that was flying with my dad. That was kind of the part of the deal. What is you have so many great lines from your dad. One of them I just liked was Kev. If you ever get a chance to be an astronaut, grab it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah. And oh, my uh, dad, yeah. yeah. Uh, like my dad, he reminded me of my brother because. You'd look at a rock, and he'd go, don't even think about it. And he was, like, so ahead of you on everything, you know? <laughs> or he'd thump you in the head and go, that's for what I didn't see. And you're like, what? How did he know? <laughs> well, thank you. Thank uh, you for sitting down with me. Oh, thank you. I can't. This is going to be so much fun to produce. I, I, I was going to say, how are you going to edit this? Oh, no, no, SOB? don't worry. <laughs> we can edit. <laughs> it's going to be hard to edit, uh, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want to 
I know, I know, all your fans want to meet you. Who's that? <laughs> Nancy. Oh. Did you, did you email with Nancy or Susan? Yeah, with Nancy. Okay, Nancy's back there. This is Chris. Yep. Yeah, we you we met, know we okay. know each other from your yeah. Old friends. Okay. He's a good friend of Victor. Oh, all right. yeah. We just toured up north, Victor. He wrote, God, he's just amazing, that guy. He is a lovely guy. You know who else? Uh, Shannon, Shannon, who teaches me yoga. Yeah, yeah. Shan- told uh, me that, she, and she's a musician. Yeah, I I, she was on tour with us and with Zeitgeist. Yes, and somehow we talked about you. Oh, okay. We, oh, she's fantastic. Yeah, that whole group. I'm not even sure I know Shannon's last name. I'm trying to think of it too. I know it. Uh, I just know her as. God, can she tank all the ivories? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she's amazing. That whole group. We just toured up north, and we were talking about, I I thought it was going to be a little too eclectic for the northern palette, but, <laughs> oh, man, they were all over it. They are great. And was Victor part of that group? Mm-hmm. He wrote all the music. Oh, yeah, he wrote all the music. It was all based on bird poems, these bird poems that I wrote. He took all those bird poems and turned them into music. Oh. And it's really amazing. And most of those you wrote during your rehab. On, in morphine, yeah. On morphine, yeah. They're all sort of hallucinogenic. Oh, really? Yeah, they're really wild. And the crow one, well, that fits with it. I was really, it started because I wrote this crow poem because crows kept showing up in my hallucinations. And my buddy was a shaman. Because uh, crows, you know, they're messengers to the underworld. I thought, um, this is bad. <laughs> and my, my, uh, buddy Jamie who's a shaman said no no he said no in history crows are the things that take away things we don't want he said so the next time they come load them up with your fear and send it away Mm. and so every time they came that's what I did I put my fear on the crow and it would fly away with it Mm. so there was and crows in that whole Hayoki world they're all they're all associated with light this is a reason I know lightning Crows, all these things are associated with the people who are contraries, with their with, oh. with feeding to the That's world. why you have so much moisture. I think that the, uh, when I tell those guys I was hit by lightning, they go, of course you were. You had to have been. Huh. So, or no. So who hasn't? <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> I go, hey, I've been hit by lightning. They go, who hasn't? You know, it's like. So. I wonder also what I, I had, I nothing like you, but I had morphine when I was. Had I had C-sections with both of my children, and I had a terrible. I also hallucinated like Wasn't crazy, and I wonder what it is about because they don't warn you about it, and then you mention it, and then they finally say, "Oh yeah, that happens to some people." But oh, maybe I had there's it something. Bad. I've never been hit by lightning, but yet maybe we have something <laughs> in common. <laughs> I think there's a not yet that goes with that. <laughs> yeah, you'll know it when you do. Oh. Can I ask you a quick question about uh, a lighter note, uh, short storytelling and shame? Yeah. Because uh, um, where I grew up, any type of stretching of the truth wasn't accurate. Yeah. And so you were telling a lie. Right. You were telling a story. <laughs> and I was curious, with, as you work with different people and they ask you questions, how do you think about that? He grew that? up in North Dakota, That's, by the way. Well, <laughs> that, here's the key to getting good at it. Because I tell you, one of my friends, Bill Lepp, has won the liars contest five years in a row in West Virginia, and he's a liar. And the key is, he's so good, you want him to lie. So the idea is that you got to get to that point where they don't care if you're lying. That that's doesn't become part of the issue because yeah, a lot of people that that's what, what I grew up my my uh, 
grandma would always go, are you telling a story? And it had a very <laughs> negative connotation. And you'd say, no. And so the idea was to to really smooth those edges. And at about I'm at about 97% truth anyway. So like when my parents are, or, or when my family comes to shows, they're, they back me up. So I don't, I, well, I have two little boys, a four and a six year old, and you know that's where you kind of almost have to step back from what you've learned over your yeah. lifetime. And where do you let that go? And then where do you know where that story is a story? But who told yeah. us that lying is uh, that lying is part of the what part path to becoming ethical? That there's that oh, kids right. learn to lie as they learn to tell mm-hmm. the truth. Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. I can't remember who we we were yeah. we heard that together somewhere. Yeah. But I think in, in a, when you were talking about this day and age of myth, myth, mm-hmm. and so much of what we get on the news, so much of our news has lost being news and is now opinion. So much of our news is myth yeah. that the fact of being a storyteller and admitting right off <laughs> this might not be true <laughs> takes some of the onus off of it. And then they can get to the truth that's in the story and they aren't having to worry about the shallow truth. They mm-hmm. can worry more about the depth of the truth. Yeah. So I think in... I think that's one of the reasons storytelling has made a resurgence. It's it's more honest in its in its nature than I mean because now on the news, news is entertainment now and mm-hmm. it's blurred. Poetry too, I think, undergirding truth, which doesn't it, it doesn't try to fit into factual boxes anyway. No, I love po- poetry. Is like when we're talking hubris, it's the ultimate hubris because you're throwing something out there. It's like that Greek. Um, a sheen that uh, uh, the Irish poet Finn McCool's son he threw it out. He threw his poetry so far it hit the other world, and that's when Neve came and got him and took him to the other world. And I think I lo- and uh, it goes with Henny Youngman. Um, poetry, no poets have great imaginations. They imagine people read their poetry. <laughs> <laughs> But I think poets have the. But that's the truth. I think they are, they are, they are our, um, explorers in the world of literature because mm-hmm. they're aiming the furthest, and and which means the more they're, and they're lo- lonely like explorers. They are. They're the. Lo- they got serious long gene action going on. <laughs> they're the long geners of our day. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kev, do you have? Um, I got tons of recordings. But what would be your favorites? Oh my God! Feature is sort of getting because so much of, and I've seen it several times. So much of the joy of that is Mm -hmm. the surprise of an audience reaction to. I have one live CD. Yeah, that was done here. Yeah. Um, But there's anything from the if they recorded any of the, the tales from the underbelly or the. I bet they. I bet I do have something at home. I got stuff. Yeah, think about it. Like I got a bunch of CDs after shows when people go, "Here's a CD." Oh, oh really? Yeah. Great. Think I, about it. I mean, it's something that I think would be a nice element to bring mm-hmm. in. You know, it would. That would be. Audience reaction. And so. Okay. Oh, I definitely got yeah tons of stuff. I guess you're you're looking for something that has some audio quality. 
So maybe not something somebody oh. recorded on their phone. No, no, no when, it's not that. It's it's like recordings that were made from through oh, the studio. Made, yeah, oh. that that were made in the theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So they are they a lot of them, and and I and then I do have like lots of stuff that I've, stories that I've done. Mm-hmm. The one that comes to mind for me that I love is the um, the just five more seconds. Or is it two oh more yeah, the Valentine story. story. I read that. Yeah, yeah that one. I'm, when he tells about it, it's just. There's a hush there that yeah. is. Uh, yeah, that's a. I'm telling that on Saturday. Yeah, that's going to be in the Valentine show. Oh right. So. Is that here? Mm-hmm, at O'Shaughnessy. Oh. Maybe we could hey, record, record that. It. Oh yeah, I'll ask them if they can. Mm-hmm. And if they can't, then we could maybe we could find a way to. Yeah. To do it because that'd be. It'd be great to have a little mm-hmm. extra sentence on there. Okay. Not that this 90 minutes wasn't. <laughs> oh God! I oh I don't even know what I thought. Your questions were great, though. I mean, right? Just like right at the heart. Everyone was at the heart. Well, but it's yeah. But it if it uh, it it feels like I was. I mean, you were great too. You you met me, but um, I was also really aware that I was that your medium is stories and. You know, there's a way in which I was worried about flattening you out because trying to put you into this question and answer conversation mode. And I, I think you totally rose to the challenge, but it was, it, it, it was challenging. It was challenging for me to not, Did, not diminish anything. Ah, I don't think it at all. No. no, I think that that's these questions aren't the stories. They're where they come. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a very different. It's like what you're saying. It's, it's really different. It's really different. Yeah. Because the, these are the things you think about. You put these in subliminally in the stories, but you can't. You don't put this in the story. You can't tell people what to think. You've got to let it explode. Mm-hmm. So this is the stuff that you think about, but don't. And so when somebody comes up afterwards, well, the key to a good storytelling is somebody doesn't come up and tell you what you said. They tell you what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Then you go, oh, good, that worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the stuff that you hope what you were asking about is being the seeds that are being put in there. I was at a, I was at this big Manhattan public relations firm on Monday, and I was telling them, p- people I'm interviewing coming up, and the one, the one that this young woman is, I don't know, 25 or something, the one she got really excited about was you, Kevin Kling. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unbelievable, huh? So my mom knows a twenty-five-year-old. <laughs> That's what that means. <laughs> I had to say we didn't get into this at all, and it it wouldn't have worked. But I did. Just the stories of your mother and your, your family, but really for me, I don't know. As a woman, I think your mother and that she, life she had, and oh boy, what she went through and what she made of herself. Mm-hmm. I know I've got to do more of those, especially and my sister. Uh, my sister's got a. She was a, a school teacher, and she's got great. Just, uh, just. Well, you'd love this one. Overhearing her on the phone, she has all these kids. She's got five kids, and she. I can hear her talking on the phone, and she's no, no, honey, leave that banana alone. It's gone to Jesus. She says her banana's gone to Jesus, and she's just, oh god, she's really good. Yeah. 
So yeah, there's, parenting I mean, parenting is one big comedy stand-up sketch. Oh my, <laughs> it's so true. That's really, yeah. Uh, oh. My mom's been very generous about letting me tell some stuff. She's been really good. Is she still alive? Mm-hmm. Is she here? She's up in northern Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. We just toured Ireland because mom read somewhere. When you turn 80, you don't travel very well, and she's 79. So she goes, we're going to Ireland. So me and my sister and my brother, we all drove around Ireland and Scotland. And I just loved it because mom's history of where it was, she had a way better history than any book. Because everywhere we went, she goes, you know, kids, one day we owned all this. (laughs) No matter where we were. And we were castles in there. And we had the funnest time in her trip. Oh, God, we laughed our heads off. Yeah, she's a pistol. Yeah. Yeah. Should we hang her up? We just, you know, as long as we're still rolling, just keep talking. Oh, (laughs) I can blab all day. That's a problem. We didn't have her for three days, and all of a sudden. I know. I just kind of. Oh, no. Oh, God. So I'm going to whip cracker. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of out of it, I is in New York. You yeah. eat too much and drink too much and don't sleep and it's great and then you get home. You well, they zap you too because you're not from there. And they, I, I don't know, I find it exhausting going to New York. I'm not exhausted when I'm there. I'm energized. It's right. when I come back that I'm exhausted. It all just, and I have this, I go into this different mode, but then it's like my, I grind to a halt when I, when I got home yesterday and it made pot roast. I mean, I said, I actually said to my kids, this is one of these moments where I'm like, she goes to New York, you know, she's on a plane, she meets her funders, and she makes pot roast. You know, my son actually, to his his credit, he says, good job, mom. Oh, yay, <laughs> see? But of course, it's just, they just think of it as their birthright, pot roast. <laughs> That's the stuff that lives, though. Good job. That's right. It's good like, job. oh, thanks. <laughs> 